13 minutes it is after 8 p.m. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. We go into uh, our Thought Leader Thursday segment. And uh, uh, my Thought Leader and guest this uh, evening is uh, Cecilia Nonjokweni, who is an author and uh, academic. And uh, she joins us on the line now. Uh, Cecilia, good evening to you and welcome. Good evening, everyone. And thank you so much for this warm welcome. Yeah, man. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm well, I'm well, I'm well, I'm well. And, uh, you know, Sisha, uh, uh, I think may- maybe before we get into the conversation, um, yeah. let's give everybody just a brief background of, you know, uh, who you are, where you come from. Uh, you know, uh, I certainly know you. Um, you know, Sivala uh, Gulatolopia, Sekomani. But, uh, <laughs> hey, you know, major, yeah. major, <laughs> major Tolopo. But that being said, uh, just briefly, you know, and uh, just your background and also, you know, uh, how that drove you to the world of um, imagination and uh, really trying, I guess, uh, to, to build the imaginations of young South Africans. Yeah. Originally from the Eastern Cape, grew up the side. Um, and I think what's really interesting about my life, which really connects to my work, is my studies and the time in which I was born. I was born in 1990, which is really the end of apartheid, and was able to start school in 1996, which is really when uh, discriminatory legislation is appealed in South Africa through SASA. Right? So this is like the real first time where young black people can really enter into formerly white schools. And I think then my journey was of this uh, black parents in the 90s, especially, really trying to get their children to have the best kind of education. And so mm. it was this constant shuffle going into hostel at the age of six and then moving into these different schools. And at this point in my life now, doing a PhD and working at the University of Pretoria, um, I've been to 12 different schools. And I really associate my own education journey as a real and it puts me kind of an of, of the South African experiment around education of trying of parents trying to get their child to experience a middle life kind of, of lifestyle and what that has taken. And I think my work mm. then with Wanda and the books that I've written at this point are really influenced by this this question of entering in and out of different cultures in an mm. attempt to have a kind of life or to form a type of life. Um and so yeah, so I'm quite I'm quite deeply interested in education and that is my area of work and, and all of my work deals with those kinds of issues around class and identity um as mm. a result of those experiences. You know, you know, we often we often talk about the the crisis in our education system, and when I say this, you know, I'm just talking about the ba- basic education system, uh, and we often talk about it, you know, in rand terms. It's a crisis of you know not having enough money in the system, uh, not having basic infrastructure standards in the system, uh, but we also seldom talk about you know I guess the project of knowledge, you know, uh, reproduction in that space, uh, you know, the creation of imagination and creativity. Uh, in young people, and and I guess how alienating an experience the basic education system remains for many people in quintile one, maybe quintile two schools. Um, What becomes the role of the work that you do, Um, you know, as an author, but also as somebody who thinks very deeply about, uh, you know, this idea of reading as an enabler, but also as an act of recreation and and rediscovery? So, I mean, I think what we really get to miss in the black education system, so if you think about ECD and you think about the foundational years where children really move from homes when they're speaking, let's say, to this class time, and I walk into school and I'm suddenly learning in English and I really have no understanding of what I'm learning. I think what we miss is this opportunity to have active and engaged children, right? So who are interested in what they're learning, who find the work interesting and it's curious and it's awakening to them. And I think then what you then have is for a long time, these children really who are in a system that is that almost feels mixed, right? Because 
you didn't really learn how to read between grade R and grade three, and suddenly you, you are in the intermediary phase in grade four, you don't really know how to read to learn, right? And then ultimately now you just need to catch up, and then it becomes very formulaic and very rote kind of learning. And so education becomes, I think, this very... Um, it, it becomes a squared place that happens when you get to school and actually you're trying to avoid it because it's boring and it doesn't engage you. And I think that it doesn't really call out the kinds of creativity that we can see in black life in particular and, and in, in African kinds of settings because, one, there's no resonance in the way in which the stories that children are learning in these schools. And I think mm. where I am and I think where a lot of young um, South African writers is really trying to to write stories that have resonance. So they have artifacts of black life. So when I read it, I have a kind of feeling about, oh, hey, I've seen that before, or I've mm. felt that. Oh, wait a minute, when I entered into that school and in that space, the, the thing that is being described in the book is something that I know for myself, and I literally feel it as I it's being read to me or as I read it. And I think that the more people read works that reflect their own lives, suddenly books become relevant, right? Because then they're not mm. uh, castigated to a school space where I have to do it because I'm going to be tested with it. Whereas I think... Schools and in the South African context in particular have this very nervous conditions around it, right? There's a, a trepidation that you must have because you're careful. And it's not about, hey, mm. what do you have to give? What do you bring in? What cultures of your own can really add to the kinds of innovation that we're looking for for proudly South mm. African products in the future? Um, and so I think that the work that I'm doing is really to try and redeem some of that and to hopefully kind of awaken um, a spirit of curiosity in children and specifically such very very interesting and uh, i guess in what you're saying i mean a lot of connections with uh, you know this uh, frarian idea of uh, you know uh, co-creating that pedagogical experience you know the the process of learning um yeah. and uh, and i want us to take a brief break here and uh, take a, a spot break and when we come back uh, we we go into some of the stories uh, and uh, also i guess get a sense of you know, the business of the publishing as well, because, uh, you know, we know some of uh, your work has been licensed out to places like the Netherlands and, uh, and other places. Uh, and also, I guess, the task of, uh, you know, translating knowledge production into living knowledge in spaces where people interact with it every day, uh, which yeah. is often... And I guess the criticism of, of uh, the academic project that, you know, we sit in our ivory towers and, uh, you know, recreate and create all of this knowledge, uh, but it just sits there and gathers dust. So we'll pick yeah. up those themes after this brief break. Twenty-three minutes it is after eight p.m. It's uh, Thought Leader Thursday uh, here on Metro FM Talk, and our Thought Leader on this Thursday is uh, a, a PhD candidate and lecturer at the University of Pretoria and author, Sihlan uh, Onjokweni, and uh, joining us uh, to uh, talk uh, everything uh, knowledge production, uh, and uh, of course, uh, I guess you know the other dynamic is uh, you know that uh, there's an entire you know world of money. Uh, around uh, the world of ideas and the world of uh, the creation and dissemination of knowledge, uh, which uh, comes with its own dynamics. Um, and I was uh, making the point earlier on that some of your work, uh, although I guess uh, you uh, uh, write it uh, for a South African audience, uh, would have a universal message that uh, many other people across the world would be interested in. Uh, talk to us about the process of uh, getting it into the hands of you know, uh, Dutch children and uh, I guess uh, the business side of that. Yeah, so I mean, I think 
Uh, mostly for the South African context would publish in two ways, right? So you'd either be self-published or you would go through a publisher. And so with Wonder for Us, we published the book with Jakarta Media. And for, and I think then what that does in some ways is that it, it, it means that they are the middleman. So in terms of, of really seeking out opportunities abroad in particular to be able to get the book and the rights of the book, uh, both in the US and Canada and the UK and Australia, which is basically where Wonder has reached now. Uh, so they've really done that kind of hard work of, of connecting us to the right audiences. And, and we, of course, then are the ones who can decide, right? Like, do we want this particular company uh, to have the rights of the book? But but they, they do the middleman work, right? Yeah, and, and, and in that process, I mean, well, if, if you would think about it in the broader scheme of things, I mean, you know, what becomes the role of the author and the payoffs they get uh, in a context where it's rapidly digitizing? I mean, even for, for the kind of you know, uh, content that you put out and even for that audience, um, you know, even, you know, two-year-olds, I mean, I know six months are playing with, you know, with tablets and interacting with um, your content in, in very different ways. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the wonderful thing is that once your book kind of has a much larger access, like a much larger audience, is that there's a lot more opportunity to have a kind of revenue that comes from it. I think in South Africa, it can be quite limited. Because uh, then if you think of like what a, what a best-selling kind of children's book is, yeah, how many copies it would sell, what is the real income uh, enjoyment that a writer would necessarily have. I think with children's books, unlike a novel, for instance, I that it has a much longer life uh, span. So I think you're looking to really get money in from it <laughs> over like a 15-year kind of period. And so I think for us, there's, there is also that sense where you, you understand that you, you're looking at a much more long-term idea of how, what this becomes. And how then do you also bolster it, right? So as opposed to it just being one to one, then what do you do in really bringing out a series of books so that it can really be uh, the kind of book that parents would want to get? So I think the the last two years for us have been doing the real hard work of getting people to want the book in their homes, people talking about the book. And I think for the next couple of years, it's really then building onto this 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 work. And, and really optimizing on the audiences that we have already so that it ultimately there is some kind of, of, of financial reward for this kind of work, which I think often isn't much um, when it is only limited to South Africa. And I guess, you know, the other flip side is, is um, you know, some of the opportunities and the potential of getting these stories to where, um, you know, many of us feel they should be heard the most. Uh, and a lot yeah. of those decisions in many cases are made you know, by uh, decision makers within, for instance, the provincial education system in some cases, Mm -hmm. uh, who would make those explicit choices and say, you know, instead of taking a book uh, that comes somewhere from Sussex in the UK, let me take this particular book, uh, you know, that young people can identify with. What do you make of that? And and how have, uh, you know, I guess some of those, hate to use this word, uh, bureaucrats, how how have they dealt with that? So we, we've been working with Chicana to really apply with DBE to be able to get the book adopted into schools. Um, I think, I, I mean, I think it, it seems like a, uh, it hasn't been such a simple process because I think a lot of the times there's applying and there's this really long kind of wait before you can get the book in. Um, and and a, a bit of irresponsiveness, if I might have to say that. So, and I think in a lot of ways, then you what you really then try to do as opposed to getting it into schools is really extend your audience that is not necessarily in school, but I guess like parents as well. So I think it hasn't been an easy process, but I think 
with the hope that we'll be working on this project over years, that ultimately uh, that there's reception over it and there's an understanding of its relevance and, and that ultimately there will be some reception of it and, and, and it gets taken into schools. But up until now, we haven't had that kind of luck um, of getting this book into schools. And I think what, what it seems like, I would actually say, is, is I think more established writers <laughs> who have been writing for much longer, who actually have a kind of a sure. household name, become the much more easier pick um, for the kinds of books that would be taken into uh, the mm. curriculum and into schools. So, so it, it is a bit of a, um, it's, it's a bit complicated, I would say, but I think over time, hopefully, that's something that we could be able to achieve with this work. Yeah. You know, Sitla, we, we see a lot of campaigns, I mean, all of the time, you know, uh, trying to encourage uh, this culture of reading, not just within the confines of a school environment, but even, you know, within the confines of the home as something, you know, that you want to create is very natural to the development of children, just like yeah. you would want a child to eat. You know, you also want them to uh, develop a certain type of, um, you know, creative sense of, of inquiry and curiosity. Um what do you make of those campaigns? I mean, you, you've been involved in some of them and uh, their relative success um, in really, I guess, trying to get uh, as many books into the hands of as many children uh, here in South Africa. Yeah. So what we know, right, is, is even as we try to, to run these campaigns, is that what's really happening in homes is that households that are more resourced, that have parents that are more educated, generally have more books, right? And so I don't know that it's necessarily just about getting 20 books in a house, but I think it's also about cultivating an interest in reading. So if you have a parent that is interested in reading, right, they're more likely to encourage you to do that. And so I think there's really a a much deeper work that I think has to be done in, in activating an interest in the household as opposed to only it being, hey, we actually put books in the clinic so that a parent can see a book and then later on they would be able to give it to their child. Because I think that just leaves a lot of, of, of the opportunity to chance. Um, what are some of the possible kinds of interventions that can happen in terms of really nudging parents to take or to think about reading seriously? And I think what's really interesting, I want that parents are interested in their children's education. They're interested in their children getting an education. And more often than not, they have an overestimation of what their children have already learned in school, right? So which kind of really shows you this um, this disjuncture between what's happening in terms of the child's learning and what the parent expects mm. the child to be learning and their own sense of responsibility about uh, them teaching the child. And of course, there's a lot of different issues that affect that, right? Um, availability, attention, etc. But I really think that there's a much more targeted kind of intervention that we can do, even as we promote that reading should be important in homes and really nudging parents to to regard that as something that is an activity that ought to be taken up in the household. But of course, yeah, yes, I think I think that there's more targeted work that can come with mm. the promoting of reading. And then, of course, I think having platforms like radio and media uh, always sure, really sure. pushes that forward. And I think when I think of what we were able to achieve with World Read Aloud Day this year, um, mm. It really comes to have institutions that have the distribution channels, that have access to radio, that really can distribute the story. And those are usually institutions that are in collaboration with DBE that can really push that agenda as opposed to just individuals essentially trying to promote the work. Um, mm. Yeah. Okay. Look, look, I mean, I guess the last question on my end, uh, Sisley, before we let you go. Um, I mean, you, you're an academic as well. And uh, also, I guess, in many ways, uh, an outcome of uh, the student movement in the broadest sense of the word um, and, and some of the currents that we've had uh, over the last 20 years or so on many of our campuses. Um, I mean, we speak at a very interesting time. There's a night vigil happening out in, you know, 
Uh, in Bramfontein, uh, we know there was a, you know, a, a protest from many students from the university you are part of, uh, all the way to the offices of the Higher Education Ministry early on today. There's a protest at UCT tomorrow. Um, and uh, we can certainly, we know in Free State something happened uh, as well uh, today. Uh, when we think about all of these currents within the context of some of the work that you are doing in the academy, um, and grappling with this idea of a sort of a very uh, a free education, not just in the sense of affordability, but free in the decolonial sense, uh, in the sense of thinking of universities as, as humanizing spaces that create knowledge and reproduce it. Uh, um, how do you see the work that you do as, as part of that particular project? So, so the last two years, um, outside of lecturing at UP, I was working managing um, a, a NASPERS-related program, uh, which really supports students who, of course, have an income level of less than 350,000 rand. And I think what is really incredibly interesting is, 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 is understanding the extent of the kinds of issues that students experience. So I, I don't think any of the challenges that students experience when they get into higher education only occur at that point that they rather a very long, protracted kind of struggle, right? So by the time in South Africa you really access higher education, you have overcome so many varying structural kinds of barriers that making it in there really should make you a deserving type of student. And so I think what's really interesting is that this, our society at large and what it has told us of the story of what's unfolding in South Africa and our own understanding of what we are capable of being or what we can do deeply affects students' sense of identity and what they can achieve and what they can do. And so we know that students, for instance, who are anastasis are less likely to be able to complete their degrees later on. And, of course, that is also an indication of things that are happening from that great R kind of phase that we're speaking about already, right? And I, and I, so I, I think about this work for me as a much earlier type of, and redemption would be a very strong word, but a much more earlier identification and a dealing of with of the issues that students are going to deal with later on. So when I think about maybe some of my students who say now, listen, I can't ask questions in class because I don't think that my accent is the right type of accent. So usually if we weren't in COVID-19, I'd go and speak to the lecturer on the side, right? Because then I don't think they judge me as much as the other students. So that's an mm. issue around which quintile school you go to. That's the question around access. That's the question around finances. And what mm. we're seeing with the protests now is directly... Um, it, it is a full engagement of the full story. And I think this work and the work that other writers are doing as well is to be able to say, hey, listen, what's happening here, right? Like what has been happening to these young, uh, the youth of South Africa? What has been happening to them since they were children? Mm. And how do we mm. start to deal with the psychology? And, and I think the trauma actually that has been inflicted over the years through um, racial messages sure. that we are seeing at this point um, today. And, 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 and they are... <laughs> They, they are rightfully happening. Mm, mm. So, I, I mean, I think no valuable a lesson uh, in, in the last comment that you've made than, than the importance of a life stages approach uh, to how we not only think about education, but how we think about everything, you know, uh, even uh, social protection and social assistance, uh, you know, and even, I guess, the um, kind of uh, relief and support that we provide at different stages. Um, uh, and a uh, real, real pleasure for us to uh, speak to you this evening. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you.